Hi, I'm Dr. Esra Hamel, and I specialize in biomorphic Nabati Islamic patterns, and I'm usually in London, although I'm originally Saudi, and welcome to Cut the Craft. <laughs> yes, and you have a bazillion other things. It's weird. It's like some days I feel like I don't have a lot happening. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What do I even have to do? And then some other days I'm like, what is this? Why am I drowning in every possible task? It's all right. It's just, it comes and goes. Yeah, totally. It is a lot. I think it's, it's, it's a huge balance. It's always, for me, it's always been a a really difficult, yeah, just a difficult balance between letting my craft life sort of, or, you know, my, how do I balance everything? Like just work 24 hours a day. Yeah, <laughs> or, I, I agree. Like, how do you, how do you rationalize? Like, I just want to go have fun today, or I could also have fun by working and then I won't have to think about it anymore. So it's, like, <laughs> it's true. I, I feel like sometimes it's like balance is this magical unicorn that everyone tells us that exists, but <laughs> does it really exist? It's just show me people who have their lives balanced. Like, I want to see yeah. this. I want to see yeah. real examples because yeah. anyone I talk to, we're, Every single person I know is struggling with balance, even mm-hmm. when they have like just office jobs where they don't take over their houses. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if balance is a real thing. <laughs> right. right. Well, actually, I think that um, in Scotland, it might be a real thing because I just read last night, which if we have any Scottish listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I read, or maybe you would know since you're on the same island at least. Um but I heard that the unicorn was the national animal of Scotland. Yes, it is true. Okay. <laughs> it is true. I, I heard it as well. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm here in the same island, but and I've a few people joked about it, but I think it's it's a real thing. That's amazing. That's awesome. Which is like, what better do you like? It's the best. And I want to say whales have um, the dragon in their flag. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, dragons and unicorns, what <laughs> better way to start your I life? I love that. <laughs> and I like it too that the that people in Scotland chose the unicorn over Nessie. I feel like Nessie must be pretty upset. <laughs> you know, it's like they'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh this is so good oh well, well i guess should we uh should we jump into the yeah. actual uh, interview i know right i feel there. like we're gonna be here forever but yeah yeah, yeah really yeah this is awesome well okay well welcome to cut the craft everybody i'm brian and i'm amy and we are here with dr esra el hamel a biomorphic illuminator working out of london Esra, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. So for someone unfamiliar with your work, can you describe what you make and maybe go into how the term Islamic art is an like an umbrella term? For sure. So basically, when I was doing my master's in interior architecture, 
um, we were looking at final projects and what we're going to do. And one of my teachers, well, our only teacher, it was it was a strange course, but we had like one main tutor that decided literally everything. So he was like, oh, you know, why don't you do a mosque? And I was like, what? Why do you want me? Like, I have no idea. I have nothing to do with mosques, like, and mm-hmm. no knowledge. And the only relationship between me and a mosque is the fact that we're Muslim. <laughs> and that was oh. it. And I was like, oh. why? Are you, are you just saying that because I'm Muslim? It's not like I've ever experienced, like, interest in the subject or mentioned it. And mm-hmm. then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's so stereotypical of you. Like, you want me to do this? And then I was like, let me just kind of glance at Islamic architecture and see what's what's up. Because... All my education has been a Western education and even the curriculums in Saudi, the curricula in Saudi is mostly based on Western education as well. So it's like when you're learning about art or architecture, you just learn the classical things that everyone teaches you that you start with the Renaissance, they change the world. And then it's like you go on to like the subcategories from there. Mm hmm. And no one actually ever talks about Islamic architecture other than it's a thing of the past that just happened and disappeared. So Mm. there was like loads of question marks in my head. And then I was like, you know, although it started as a stereotype, but let me kind of look into the field of Islamic art. So I googled it. And London is such an amazing place where you could find anything your heart desires literally any course that you want to do you name it you can find it in london so (laughs) i found a group called art of islamic pattern run by richard henry and adam williamson and i started doing some classes with them so they had like a different range of classes and i just went into the first one and they talked a lot about the spirituality of the patterns and like the actual construction of the patterns and how you're doing it and before that point i had no relation to islamic art in any way like i was studying interior design and interior architecture but it's just really separate so i kind of start delving into this world slowly and then i just decided to do a tea shop i really like tea um i was in london <laughs> it just it made sense so i made this, classic <laughs> yeah it's like what would you choose if you're in london a tea shop um <laughs> and then i just kind of did the interiors um like the mood board with like patterns and stuff and we called it a day it wasn't like this is the thing with masters you just write about one specific subject and you design a space and it's kind of over but I thought of doing my PhD after that well to be honest I didn't think about it my grandpa thought about it um (laughs) he was like what you mean you're just done with education after your master's like a master's is nothing (laughs) (laughs) it's not enough it's like what is that it's like equivalent of high school yeah there was no appreciation for my master's it's like whatever um but I he has a completely real life view where he saw my mom who had her master's but then in academia you don't get promoted unless you have your PhD so he was like you Mm. have to get your PhD and stuff and I was very fortunate of getting a scholarship, not the first year. The first year he um, kind of sponsored me and helped me out. And then after that, I 
got a scholarship, which was very lucky. And I was like, you know what? If I have to study something for the next five years of my life, I want it to be something that I can learn and grow from. And I was like, I like Islamic patterns that I kind of liked sustainability at the time as well, but I didn't feel like I had enough support. So I was like, let me just focus on something I'm really enjoying, which is Islamic patterns and art. And I kind of started delving into it. And little did I know, it wasn't one thing. There was no one definition for Islamic art. It's actually Mm -hmm. a gigantic term that has so much into it. It's like a catch-all term. It's just a term that is used because scholars wanted to make it easy to digest for the Western audience. So Mm -hmm. when they had uh, pieces in museums and stuff, they were like, what do we call these things? And Mm -hmm. for a while, things were just based on where they came from. They were like, oh, this is Moroccan, this is Persian. Then it kind of loosened and became Oriental. So everything became Oriental or just Eastern and then became Middle Eastern. And then they were like, you know what? these all share the same religion let's just call it islamic so Hmm. it's really interesting just tracking the term and how it's used how it developed and it's interesting as well that in arabic when you say the word islamic about something you specifically mean the religion so Hmm. if you're describing a book as an islamic book it's associated with this is a religious book if you're saying Mm. this is an islamic space you mean this is a space where people practice islam Mm -hmm. so it's like the word islamic is very much related to the religion in arabic so when you read older texts it never refers to any of this art as islamic it refers to it by geography or by the maker or by the dynasty so at the end of my literature review i couldn't really specify what islamic art was because we could keep talking about it it's just one of those really really rich subjects and you can keep tracking it in so many different areas but it's just a big umbrella term to me loads of things like art that happened in the islamic region that happened under rulers who identified as muslims so it's just It's a really big term that holds everything. But my specific specialty is patterns. And the patterns that I really enjoyed were the plant-based stylized patterns. Most people refer to them, well, it's actually quite a new name that only started, I think, either the end of the 20th century or the beginning of the 21st Hmm. the term biomorphic so before to describe organic curvy patterns people used by people i mean like scholars and books and like museums they Hmm. use the word arabesque to describe these kind of patterns which is really misleading term because Mm. a lot of the patterns that happened were actually designed by people in Persia or in Turkey or in India none of them spoke Arabic none of them Mm. were Arabs so Mm. it it just it's a cute romantic term so it's just so I try and avoid it as much as possible and my friend and I were discussing the term bimorph and she was like it's not a beautiful word (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, it's not beautiful, but it's very factual. Yes. <laughs> it tells you this is from plants. Because if you say plant-based, 
it, we have a really different meaning for that. It just means you're vegan. If you say you have a plant-based <laughs> way. So it's like, oh, how do you, what do you mean vegan patterns? <laughs> but in essence, they are like based on vegetal motifs. Also, vegetal mm-hmm. is all, another word that's not very pretty. <laughs> but then we have the Arabic word for it, which is nabati. So I'm trying to kind of implement it a little bit more. And it literally means from plant. I like nabati by far better than any of the other options. (laughs) That's what my friend Samira Mayas was saying as well. She was like, look at all the non-English words that are used to describe things. And nabati is the prettiest. And I was like, she kind of influenced me. She's a true influencer. (laughs) I was going to ask too. I mean, even I feel like the meaning of biomorph is more attractive than the word biomorph. Because like, you know, that's like life shape is mm. like bio and morph. And I think life shaped is way better than biomorph. I like life. The thing, My two cents. <laughs> but with life shape, then it's like, it feels like it, in, it encompasses so much more. And you mm. could in, like include the human form. But with the patterns, you see things that come from vegetation, flora and fauna. And then some parts from animals and birds. And that's about it. (laughs) So Mm. it's like, it's very specific. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's stick with nabati. Nabati (laughs) is like the most correct. There is another word in Arabic to describe it as well called tawriq. But it's a slightly harder word because Mm. it has like um, the really (laughs) harder sounds in it. Mm -hmm. Mm. But I hope... What does that translate to? Is it the exact same or... Almost the same. It just means leafy or to leaf things. (laughs) And like to just keep adding leaves. (laughs) I like that too. (laughs) Like in Arabic, it's such a, because it's such an old language, we have lots of words, like to, like super specific words that could tell you about just one verb and take it to like a completely different level. (laughs) But I hope that answered the question. Yeah, yeah, it does. Because <laughs> I went on and on about talking about the different bits. North House Folk School in Grand Marais, Minnesota, teaches traditional craft on the north shore of Lake Superior. Classes through the first half of 2023 are now open for registration. Learn everything from woodworking to weaving, sausage making to sailing, and blacksmithing to basket making. Learn more at northhouse.org. Take a week-long or weekend class at the John C. Campbell Folk School and explore their scenic 270-acre campus, attracting students from all over the world. Browse over 800 class offerings in subjects including weaving, clay, blacksmithing, woodworking, nature studies, and more in their new July 2022 through June 2023 catalog. Available online now at folkschool.org. Whether you're picking up a hammer for the first time or you're an experienced blacksmith who's looking to hone your skills, Miss Caitlin's school in Frederick, Maryland can help. They offer individualized instruction aimed at getting you smithing as quickly and effortlessly as possible. Register online at MissCaitlinSchool.com. 
That's M-S-C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-S-C-H-O-O-L.com. Well, so then how, how long have you been doing this? So I started, I think, sometime in 2013. This is when I started doing the classes. Mm-hmm. And then Adam and Richard mentioned a school where they graduated for their master's. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. But the prince is no longer a prince. He's a king. So yeah. I don't know if that will impact <laughs> the name at all. <laughs> So I continued doing some classes and then I trained with an artist in Iran and an artist in Turkey. And there's so much to learn, like Mm. at every moment. It's like the more I learn, the more I feel like, oh my God, I still need to learn this other thing. So it's a constant thing of learning. I just, sometimes I just call it a study, Mm. like it's a continuous study of Mm. the subject. I'm, anytime I'm stumped on coming up with some kind of term to describe what I'm doing, I think I might just write you an email and ask you to <laughs> come up with like, the right term for it. We can just talk about terms all day. <laughs> so, funny. so, so then, would you say that Nabati is something that spans like dynasties and regions and things like that? Is it? Uh, how would you define that? So, Nabati would be the stylized patterns. And mm-hmm. it's really important to note that each region had their own specific words. Like mm-hmm. in Farsi, they would use the two words, Islimi and Kata'i. And then in Turkish, they would use Rumi. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure like in India and um, Central Asia, they would have their own terms as well. But the essence stays the same. And this is the interesting thing why I think they were grouped as Islamic because they all have a similar vibe Mm -hmm. and they have this kind of unifying visual of them. So it feels like it's a brand. So if you think Mm -hmm. of like Islamic lands, and ceramics in those lands like Mm -hmm. the image that you have kind of applies into different places and Mm -hmm. although the vibe is the same but there are geographical differences depending on color palettes like things that they've used like in central asia and uzbekistan or that area before it was called uzbekistan had like different shades of blues in a lot of their ceramics when you go towards iran you see a lot more yellows and greens and when you move towards turkey you get more reds Mm -hmm. so it's kind of there are different influences that happen but the main idea of like this is a space and we're going to beautify it in stylized patterns Mm -hmm. and like taken from their natural surroundings. So it's like you see a lot of flowers that are local to certain areas. Like a lot of the things that happened around Egypt and Syria, they they weren't as, well, some of them were quite floral. Mm -hmm. But in the Memluk dynasty specifically, they had much stronger geometry. Like in Iraq, they have much stronger geometry as well. So Mm -hmm. it's just... Each area has its own contribution, but it has definitely spun from 
the east to the west of the Islamic lands across centuries. And it mm-hmm. developed differently based on the ruling dynasty, the support for art and those kind of factors. Well, so then kind of, you know, talking about all of these different dynasties and different stylistic differences, uh, it leads me to a question I wanted to ask you that is either every PhD graduate's favorite question to be asked or least favorite question to be asked. And that is, can you tell us about what you focused on for your PhD? (laughs) For sure. So one of the places that I really enjoyed visiting and I was Um, struck by how stunning the patterns were was Iran and there are two specific mosques that I absolutely loved in the city of Isfahan so those two old mosques from the 16th century they like 16 to 17 they just spoke to me so much so it's like when I stood in that space I absolutely loved it with my whole heart and I was like these are the patterns that I want to bring into the table and both mosques were during the Safavid dynasty and it just kind of like it was the dynasty I decided to focus on because they started doing biomorphs in a really different way and they call that stage the golden empires of Islamic lands, which were actually three. So you have the Safavids in Iran, you have the Ottomans in Turkey, and then you have the Mughal in India. So it's like they were all happening at the same time. So like the 16th to 17th century was such a great creative time, in my opinion. Like you could, some people have different favorite periods of history. Of course. Um, Just like for me, every time I looked at those patterns, I really liked them. So I decided to spend my time analyzing the patterns. The only thing was because I didn't read Farsi, which is very unfortunate. And my plan was like to learn and to go and to go to the library there. But there was multiple political issues that kind of didn't make that plan happen. So Mm -hmm. I tried my best of just relying on like conversations with artists and just to rely on the visual pattern itself and try and be informed from the motifs as much as possible. Mm. So cool. that that was that was it in a nutshell. So what was it about the patterns that you liked particularly? Like it, the detail? Mm, I like the symmetry a lot. So the symmetry mm. is the main contribution Mm. that Islamic patterns had to the world. The Mm. way they were repeated and mirrored, it's really beautiful. There's different types of symmetry in there, like bilateral and rotational. And it's just the motifs that they have. And Mm -hmm. the fact that when you look at all of these patterns, you're almost transported into this imaginary magical world because the whole point of being surrounded by patterns especially in a space of worship is for you to stop thinking of everyday life to stop thinking of exactly what's outside you are supposed to go in and have a moment between you and god and just like be present and to be present you are kind of isolated from the exact replicas of the world because Mm -hmm. you're not in in the outside world anymore you're having a moment with your own thoughts so it's just the ability of these patterns to do all of that i think is really Hmm. beautiful yeah i like that 
And especially if you're surrounded by like loads of them. It's like when you just look at one pattern, it's like, oh, this is pretty nice, whatever. But if you are surrounded by endless patterns in a living room, if your pattern, if your living room is like from ceiling to wall, tiled in patterns, it's a really impactful experience. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because I was just thinking about when we were, you know, kind of looking at your work and stuff like that and figuring out how we were going to trap you for an interview. Um, (laughs) Some of my favorite examples of your work were the ones when you had a bunch of different patterns uh, laid out and it was almost like a little collage or kaleidoscope. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just showing a bunch of different examples, but it just kind of made me want to like fall into them and swim around or like climb on them or something. Yeah, like and, that, that. and imagine I mean, if like if just one is repeated endlessly and you're just mm. surrounded by it. Oh my god, it's like it does wonders to your brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Can can you kind of elaborate on how your process works and what it does for you personally? Just since we're on that kind of, I don't know, that route. It seems like mm. we're headed in that direction. So. The process is really different, and my process is very um, planned, which helps me think. So mm-hmm. it's like every pattern, although it's um, stylized flowers and they're all curvy lines and stuff, but they're all based on geometry. So the basis is always geometry. There's always straight lines and construction behind it. And sometimes when I want an idea or something, I endlessly just do like really, really simple geometric shapes and just kind of let them lead me into like the vortex in my brain that (laughs) gets ideas out. And I like the form of repetition. So we have so much repetition with these patterns so I'm always designing one specific section and this section is repeated to death basically Mm. (laughs) and you're just like tracing it endlessly and that whole thing I feel like it forces you to sit and think about things and Mm. I really like that so it's like Mm. you're you're not only repeating it when you're painting it but you're also repeating it with the shapes by when you're drawing it by a pencil so it's like you're drawing them and drawing them and drawing them and it could take weeks for you to finish the drawing depending on the scale like if you're doing something small you'll finish in a few hours but it's like I have one that I'm working on that's size A1 which is not huge but because it my work is really small so it's just like filling that space and it's only one pattern that is actually a sixth of a hexagon that I've been repeating but imagine repeating like a really small one over like an A1 page it's taking me a while and you have to be really careful not to smudge your pencil as well and it's just it can go on and Sometimes it feels tedious just repeating the thing, but after a while, you're just like, you look back at that time and you're like, oh, that was quite relaxing or, okay, it helped me figure out this other area that I was thinking of. So Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a great space for me to think. I don't always come up with great ideas when I think, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking. (laughs) 
Wow. I, uh, I feel like just listening to you talk about your process like takes me on a teeny bit of that journey with you. And it's like I keep getting lost in like I feel like it's some kind of meditation, like instructional video or something. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be talking to you right it's now. Like, be, be guided by my voice to draw this pattern. <laughs> um, so you, you said you're drawing it out are you going back with painting are you using gilding like what what sort of mediums are you using so when it comes to that after i finish doing the pencil it depends on two things am i just painting in color or am i adding gold because adding gold it's its own technique and i tend to use the traditional Islamic slash Eastern way, which they use shell gold a lot. So where the gold has been transformed into almost like paint. So you get the gold sheets and then you kind of like really um, crush them to make them into a paste where you use it for painting. So Hmm. it becomes very almost like chorus watercolor in a way. Hmm. And you Hmm. just like apply it in that way. So it is gilding but not in the classical Western terms, mm-hmm. which I find like both ways really interesting to compare as well. And just both of them work on different type of things. So it's like if I'm doing a really big piece and I have big empty areas, I would go for the Western gilding because it covers more area where with the shell gold, it's for the really small details. I usually start with gold because this is what I've been taught as the traditional because gold is the most precious material. So you show it respect by using it first. Hmm. But if it's imitation gold, it really is not like a, <laughs> a big deal. It is, it's not as big of a deal as like genuine shell gold. But yeah. I just follow the tradition where I start with the gold and then I start adding the colors. If I'm not using gold at all, I just continue using watercolors as usual. The watercolors I use, they're not watery. So I make all the watercolors at the moment myself through my oh. watercolor company, Bristle and Brush. So mm-hmm. the way we do the colors is we because they're super pigmented and it's literally pigment and just gum arabic we don't add any weird things to it it's Hmm. really opaque and it's very thick and i use a lot of natural materials so it's like i use ochres in different colors and i use minerals like malachite lapis lazuli vivianite so on Mm -hmm. and i just use them in an opaque way I don't like it to be like watery. Mm-hmm. I like to use the real color as much as possible. So just gold, the opaque watercolors, and then I outline things with black ink and a brush. And that's the testing parts. <laughs> because it's not only drawing all the things, it's outlining all the things. And different <laughs> masters have different techniques. So the easiest way is to just outline everything in one width. But if you're very skilled, then you keep changing the widths ba- based on the shape that you're doing as well. Oh, so wow. that's a challenge for next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thursday, it was 71 degrees Fahrenheit, and this Saturday morning, we have snow. A couple inches more than expected, even. So it's here. Winter. 
Autumn paraded with many colors and now the yellow ginkgo leaves pop like a spit of happy piss on the white powder in contrast with evergreens and shedding birches. I could feel it happening in the wind yesterday as the temperature decreased. I've never experienced such an obvious shift in season. And as I prepare for the frigid air to settle in and harden the ground, I know I'll need some rock and roll to keep my bones moving. Sitting here writing this and researching our next guest, I see a man whose face is reminiscent of Mick Jagger's, but whose spirit seems more calm hawk than peacock. He has an alter ego named Surula. His inner self drawn out from beneath his skin by drawing his daughter did, which inspired him. Surula, or Yogesunquist, forgive me if I butchered that, is a Swedish artist who employs the woodcraft of Sloyd to preserve tradition and to stretch its limits. As a folk artist, he can sculpt trees into figures which then take on their own designs. If they needed to scoop things, there can be spoons for branches, but they'd be sculpted as if they grew that way. As a craftsman, he sculpts everyday objects for utilitarian purposes too. My favorite piece makes use of both. A chair with armrests as arms and a back that shows a human torso, so the chair is there to embrace whoever sits there, like a welcoming hug. He's got some rock and roll in his expression. Join us next episode to hear what he has to say about how his practice shapes the way he sees the world and how else you can see the things around you. Wow. I mean, because it's like when you look at these patterns, they're so intricate. Mm -hmm. And just even the fact that you're able to break these down into finding the components to repeat and to be able to repeat them in somewhat of a mindful way. And I know obviously there's got to be some trial and error in there. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But then it's like, and then the, and then once you do all that work, it's like just beginning. Yes, it's like so. When I finish the A one one day, maybe this year, maybe not. Um, <laughs> I have to go through the whole process of the gold, then the painting, and then the outlining. Oh wow! Wow. And then doing the background if I choose to. So the outlining is just the one before you finish. Oh my gosh. You're like blowing my mind right now. But it's I like, know. it's a re- I know it sounds like a lot, but when you're doing it, it does take a lot of hours, but it's very mm-hmm. satisfying. It's like, it mm-hmm. feels like there is, I read that book, could be The Craftsman by Peter. Oh, that's Korn. All. Yes. That's um, Why We Make Things and Why It Matters by Peter. It's, it's such a great book that mm-hmm. tells you about how impactful the process is for you as a human mm-hmm. being just how like your heart just feels satisfied when like mm-hmm. the industrialization happened and it separated the steps so it's like one person only does I don't know the hand of a doll and one person mm-hmm. only does the eye of a doll rather than building the whole thing it really changed our relationship with items like to us they felt less meaningful because mm-hmm. you're not doing it all like mm-hmm. having seeing the finished result and working on the whole process yourself it gives you a different type of satisfaction i also like that you mentioned 
making dolls as the industrialized example because I feel like dolls from that period were the scariest. And then I was just trying to think of which doll anatomical piece would be the scariest one to have to make on its own. Like if you were making all the doll (laughs) eyes, I feel like that would be pretty terrifying. (laughs) The thing that reminded me of the dolls is like um, basically the person who only did the eyes they struggled to find a replacement for her when she was leaving because it was the most tedious, most specific job. Hmm. Um, I don't know where I heard this. Somebody must have told me this. And it was just so funny, like hearing about <laughs> it, that they just couldn't find a replacement for for the the eyes of the doll. And she was responsible for like carving it. And she had that same job doing the same exact thing for, I don't know, like 23 years. Wow. Whoa. Can you imagine the resume? Like eyes. <laughs> it just was a single line. A single line. Eyeballs. <laughs> 1920 to 1942. Eyes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine just looking at that your whole day as well. Yeah. Could you even? I mean, you'd close your eyes and then just see eyes. The eye, yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things. Like it feels like a nightmare, but it was someone's life. <laughs> this. Is, I mean, what, I, sorry. I feel like I need to apologize to some extent. I, like I said, I've gotten very little sleep. I'm a new parent, and this is where my brain is right now. Um. (laughs) two shot eyes (laughs) yes exactly so are you using like this is getting a little bit more into the nitty-gritty just because i'm curious are you using like watercolor paper are you using something that's different i'm just so i use watercolor paper but not the one that comes from trees but the cotton one so I use a lot of cotton or hemp paper in my work. Like if I don't find it, it's not the end of the world. Like I can Mm -hmm. use literally any um, watercolor paper, but cotton is my preference. And I usually, if I'm true to the process and I'm getting everything correct as the tradition, I would also prepare the paper by like tea staining it and sizing it with either eggs or cornstarch to have like an extremely smooth surface. Mm -hmm. So my line just glides. Mm -hmm. And when I don't prepare it every single time, I can feel it when I'm outlining. (laughs) And I'm like, yep, this is why I should have done it. (laughs) Because it's like when you don't prepare the surface, even if you're using hot press, which is the smooth watercolor paper, you mm-hmm. your line is never like it doesn't glide. It's like you keep stopping and mm-hmm. starting and stopping and starting. So it's it's a worthy process, even though it's long. And there is also the burnishing, which closes all the pores of the paper and smooths it even more. Mm-hmm. So it's just like you can do it the quick way or the proper way <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that reminds brian do you remember rada pandy mm-hmm. talking about paper making i feel like she talked about burnishing too yeah, yeah because yeah because yeah, in india the traditional papers that she was sort of uh working from as examples were super highly burnished yeah mm-hmm. and it, it was funny you mentioned the Mughal period mm. earlier 
And she's actually doing a book right now that is sort of like plant portraits based off of that style. Oh, that's uh, Which is really cool. But her her work's incredible. I'll send you a link. Yes, if, please. If you'd be interested. Yeah, I love everything Mughal. Like, I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. It's it's so cool. Cause, uh, but the way that they burnish is, if I'm remembering correctly... It's either a stone, a polished piece of stone or yep. a piece of bone. But then the yeah. there was a, a curved board mm-hmm. uh, that the pages were put on uh, traditionally to do the the burnishing. But um, oh, anyway, maybe I need that board. Maybe yeah. that's what's yeah. stopping me from burnishing <laughs> properly. If only I had that board. You know, it's like the feeling when you just want to buy one more art supply. And you're like, you know what? It's because I don't have it. That's why it didn't happen. So it's like for a while, I oh. told myself, it's because I don't have a lapis lazuli stone to burnish with. Um, and I desperately needed it. And lo and behold, I got that stone. Has I Have I burnished any paper? No. <laughs> but it's yeah, there. Well, uh, well, you should just get some of Rada's papers, which are already burnished for your convenience. So. Yeah, that, that, is, that is my next step. Just outsource. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so what sort of pieces or works are you most proud of? Um, there is one in particular that I quite liked, um, which is the, mo- uh, the Moon Phases piece. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know how it was specifically born in my head, but I kind of started doing it and the idea came to me and I feel like for me it's like god gives me certain ideas because i don't feel like my brain just thought of them mm-hmm. it's like they just existed in my head and i'm like oh thank you <laughs> this is very useful so mm-hmm. i i kind of had this idea and my friend that i mentioned earlier samira uh, samira man she also does a lot of um she doesn't do it as paintings her paintings are completely different but she loves moon sighting and it was Ramadan when I came up with that, where the moon is quite important because it states the start of the month and mm-hmm. you just follow when the moon is born to start the month of fast. So it was just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it all connected. And I did the work, which is literally eight different moons. Each moon is a phase of the moon. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the full moon. The full moon has like an outer golden kind of illuminated border mm-hmm. and I really like that and I feel like I want to do more uh just with the idea or just with the same one and this is the thing it's like when you change one aspect about a pattern it becomes completely different so mm-hmm. I feel like there's so much room for me to redo it in so many different ways using different reflective metals so it doesn't have to be just genuine natural gold like it can be green gold it can be silver so I have like so many ideas within that one work that I want to experiment with. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's Jinx. cool. It's- <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice that you can, it's almost like music where you like start on a theme and then you expand mm. it into something else and yeah. it changes. And that's, I really like that. I like that you can use patterns in that way. And another thing that I re- admired about your approach just then that you just mentioned gratitude while you're, you know, mm-hmm. when those ideas strike, because I do feel like at least sometimes when I'm caught up in working on things and I will get this idea like, oh, I need to do this and like, oh, cool, like that's working out, blah, blah, blah. I think taking that moment to like 
sit back and just give thanks for that mm-hmm. inspiration and that you got to experience that is uh, such an important step that I would like to remember to to do more often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I feel like the more you're grateful, the more you get as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it's just, it is nice to kind of find the source of like, how did this idea come to my mind? Sometimes it's hard to find that source. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just like, was it even me? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And, yeah. But definitely gratitude is a big one. Yeah. So have you had any like transformations through your work? Well, I think the way I live my life is the most transformative thing that happened through my work. So when I started with the paintings and stuff, my goal for my, just my career was slightly different. So I always thought I'm just going to be a university professor. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what I was working towards, hence the PhD. But then during this really long period of time where I did research, but then no one used my university expertise or wanted me to teach while I'm doing the PhD. I was like, well, I can just work on my own thing. And this is when I fully developed my brand, islamicillumination.com and my Instagram and my students and all the classes started doing exhibitions. So it feels like a whole life form that happened and it was all unplanned. It was like my plan was to teach, which I'm kind of doing, but in a different way. Like I was going to teach very in a very structured environment where now I teach for fun for people who are trying to connect with their creativity. And I feel like that only happened because I continued working with my paintings. Like it's nice to have a goal to begin with, but even if you don't have a goal, like your paintings and your artwork and just being true to your own creative self does lead you to something very satisfying. Mm, I like that too. So I would say like, that's the, that's the only way I think of it, of how it transformed my life. Well, and it it sort of feels like the ability to be flexible, you know, and sort of follow if it changes a little bit to be able to follow that and not have a bunch of judgments around it (laughs) and just be happy. (laughs) with what makes you happy yeah that's really wonderful yeah absolutely so besides that like what else satisfies you about your work and then maybe what are some of the challenges um satisfactions i think seeing the completed work is Mm. always an achievement because i have so many paintings that are like quarter done (laughs) especially the ones that I've been teaching so it's like I do a demo and never glance at it again so when I actually finish one I'm like oh my god well done you (laughs) you've done it you've done it we we deserve a medal (laughs) so just like seeing the work actually complete is very satisfying and being able to share it through an exhibition is even better Because you get to see how people experience your work, which is a completely different gift in its own, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they just tell you what they see and it gives them kind of a a moment with themselves for them also to think. So Mm -hmm. that's quite nice. And challenges, like, I feel like everything can be or can't be a challenge. It's like Mm -hmm. you can always get both from the same thing like it's satisfying Mm. to see the work but then it's really challenging to actually complete the work 
Mm. It's challenging mm-hmm. to, for me especially, to turn my mind off sometimes from other tasks. So I feel like somebody told me this and I thought it was really a, a great way to think about it. Or maybe I heard it in a podcast. I don't know. But that creativity is like, it's like a passion that doesn't push you too much. And it kind of quietly nudges you that it wants you to do it. It's like a part of your soul that's like, it's kind of worried from overwhelming you. So it only slowly nudges you with like slow ideas of like, oh, what about this flower and stuff? And it, mm-hmm. it's not, it's never pressing, but other things mm-hmm. are always so pressing. That's like, oh my God, I need to do the laundry today. Or I need to like <laughs> finish um, like these paints and I need to send them to customers. So it's like, sometimes I find other tasks really pressing. They force me into doing them right then where my paintings are just sitting quietly and just like, well, we'll wait for you. And Aww. I know they're so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Celebrate 50 years of pioneering craft education with Touchstone Center for Crafts in southwestern Pennsylvania. Immerse yourself in a hands-on learning experience, including blacksmithing, ceramics, glass, drawing, painting, fine metals, and more. Special programming is offered for educators, nature enthusiasts, teens, and veterans with scholarships, internships, and residency opportunities available. Explore the galleries, enjoy a date night mini workshop, or find your next group retreat location at their beautiful wooded 150-acre campus. Visit touchstonecrafts.org to find your craft community. Making and living with craft deepens our lives. Unfortunately, many of the tools we use to share our work do the opposite. We Make is a small collection of makers, designers, and business thinkers, and they're asking, what could a craft-focused, maker-managed social platform look like? They'd like your input. To see what's planned and to share your thoughts, visit makermap.com. <laughs> it's like they give me so much space, and I just, <laughs> I'm a bit much. I need to go back to them. So... It's just a challenge to just sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to do a slow task today. I'm not going to do something very quick with Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, housework. Oh my God. I have so Mm -hmm. much of that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting how oftentimes like the thing that you in many ways want to do the most is the one that's the most patient with you, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's Mm -hmm. like you always find ways of elevating those things that aren't necessarily what you want to be doing and it's not to say those aren't important and they need doing obviously like your laundry oh, I know. Um, <laughs> laundry but... and dishes and the floors it's like the list for house chores goes on <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it, it, kind of going off of that and i think we touched on it a little bit earlier or maybe hinted at it but i mean just in terms of balance like you have a watercolor making business you have your own illumination practice you teach you just got your PhD, you have a family life, house chores, like how do you, are you a regimented person or is it just kind of like all sort of flowing and different things kind of press upon you at different times? 
I feel like I want to say it's all flowing and I'm very flexible. (laughs) (laughs) And I just like do things when they need me doing. But Mm -hmm. it, it, it can be really challenging. For example, with the podcast, I have to do it in seasons. Um because I find it really difficult to do it the whole time. So it's Mm. like I would do it, like I would do all my recordings in like two months and then I would give it to the editor and just start the season. And by the end of that, I feel really drained from that one specific area. I'm like, okay, I can't can't do any art interviews for like another three months now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just like pause it. While this is paused, I tend to focus on something completely different in the meantime but by the time i'm finished with this second thing i'm like my energy has been filled for the podcast again and i'm mm. like okay i'm ready to do that again and it comes in waves like the great thing about when we started the paint company is it was during covid so i had no social life <laughs> at right all it <laughs> completely helped because if I had my social life, I don't think I could have done it. And now that social life is back, the balance is yet again so messed up. <laughs> um, because I want to do all the social things. And like the autumn is like so lovely. Well, the summer was lovely. To be honest, every single season is so nice. Um, and Wait, you said you lived in England, right? Yeah, we had such a good summer. Okay. Like it was super sunny. And hot to the point where now that it's starting to cool down, I'm like, oh, thank God. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy for the rain. <laughs> I think you're, that's amazing. I've never heard anyone talk about the weather pleasantly in regards to England. No, Meaning no offense, <laughs> no but offense. I'm just, I'm just impressed. It used to be really rainy and gray and stuff, but the past few years we've had really good summers, like really hot it was so hot to the point where the grass was no longer green in England so there was like all these park pictures of like before the summer and after Mm -hmm. like the grass completely became yellow it was just crispy because no one waters the grass it's like Mm -hmm. we have rain so Mm -hmm. like the whole Greenwich Park it's beautiful lush park became just yellow Wow, that's crazy. So we had a bit of a drought in Europe, which a lot of people loved. But for me, it's <laughs> like I have a a very, although I'm Saudi, you would think I love the heat, but I have very specific toleration to heat. And like, <laughs> if it's more than 28, I don't like it. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. Well, I guess uh, it, if it does have sort of a foreboding climate change vibe to it. But, oh my God. Uh, yes, yes. It, it has been really bad. It's like when you look at the world, you're like, oh my God, climate is definitely happening. Oh. Yeah. It's true. Oh, it has. Boy. Yeah, I know. Big changes. But I'm looking so, forward to the cool weather and like all the autumn activities and mm-hmm. which means less time to work. But then it's like Christmas is really important if you are a business person. Mm-hmm. So it's like you have all the Christmas markets you need to attend and like all the gifts that you need to prepare for people, which is really nice that you can contribute in, into people's lives. But then it's just the to-do list becomes wild but it means january is going to be slow 
Right. Right. <laughs> yes. Like drops off. Yeah. <laughs> right after Christmas for sure. It's like you just need to take January and February off. Just like yeah. go yeah. somewhere nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any mentors you'd like to acknowledge that have made a difference in your life or your practice? So I don't know if, I guess, I've, like, any teacher or any good friend can be a mentor. So it's like, mm -hmm. none of them have this title assigned to them. But mm -hmm. like, they hold a great place in my life in terms mm -hmm. of like helping me out with ideas and just, you know, thinking of these things. My mom is a great mentor. She helped me mm -hmm. actually finish my PhD. So <laughs> shout, shout out to <laughs> Nijat El Shafi, my mom. Um, because I mean, seriously, if she didn't help me edit my PhD, I don't think we would. I would be Dr. Esra. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my husband is super supportive as well, and he started the paint company with me. So another shout out to Brian Mulholland. <laughs> nice, awesome. Um, oh, another Brian holding down the fort. I know, <laughs> but he's Brian with a Y and an A. Whoa! Ooh, strike two, strike three. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um and my really good friend who I mentioned twice, um, Samira Mayan with a silent N. So it should be Samira Maya. Okay. Okay. Um and lots of people, like literally all my teachers are amazing and I'm very grateful to them. And I have like few posts every like once a year or something where I'm like gushing about them, like, I love you all. You all help me so much. <laughs> it's like we never exist as an island. Everyone helps mm. you out in some way. It's just like mm. even simple conversations between mm. colleagues and just my art friends. If I go mm. with any of them to just an afternoon tea and we just talk for ages about all our businesses and how we're going to achieve them and all of these conversations are super amazing. That's so yeah. nice. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. If someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Um, everything I spoke about, you can find on islamicillumination.com. Um, the paint company is at bristleandbrush.co.uk. And in both of them, you'll find like loads about me, workshops I teach. If you're in London, I teach once a month here in Cast Art. So lots of things happening on the website. I'm trying to stay on top of the blog to bring more subjects. So we'll see about that. It's also one of, <laughs> I think it's going to be next year mission. Nice. Look at those goals. <laughs> so many. It's like I can't even remember them. <laughs> It's like, Aww. just recap my goals, send me a list. We're like, this is what you said you'll do. We'll hold you accountable now that it's been recorded. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> well, Esra, thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing hearing just about your journey and, you know, despite its kind of racist origins that you've <laughs> taken it and really reconnected with like your a lot of your culture. And uh, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just been awesome. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you guys so much. It was such a pleasure. And I can't wait to listen to more of your episodes. They're all downloaded. It's part of my goals. <laughs> I'm going to listen oh. to all of them. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And what, what was the, what's the name of your podcast? I know there's links to it on your website, but it's just called, so people hear. Yeah, it's called Art Illuminated. Okay. I love the word illumination. It's like literally in everything that I do. <laughs> it is a beautiful, beautiful word. Yes. Um, and also you have an interview with Miriam Johnson that I listened to, 
who is someone who we've also interviewed on our show. Mm -hmm. And so, if you know, I think I was looking at your lineup of people you've talked with and I was like, oh, yes, (laughs) I can't wait to do some deep diving as well. (laughs) Oh, and we'll have you both on the podcast soon as well. So that's another conversation that we need to have later. Oh, great. That'll be fun. Ezra, thanks again. You're the best. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too. Bye. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. We wanted to make a quick correction to a small part of the conversation in it. We made a reference to some books and authors, and I think we hybridized the books and authors. (laughs) So, Amy, if you wouldn't mind disentangling us. (laughs) Yes, yeah. So we had a little bit of a mashup there. Uh, We were referring to two different books and two different authors. And the first is Peter Korn, who wrote why we make things and why it matters and richard sennett's book is the craftsman so we just wanted to make that perfectly clear for all of the the folks who joined us for that conversation and if i'm remembering correctly ezra was referring to the craftsman by sennett correct yes i think so but it sounded like in the email (laughs) that she had read both of them so (laughs) okay well go check them both out if you're interested yeah 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 (laughs) But anyway, so yeah, thank you for that, Amy. And uh, and also to everyone who has supported the show, whether financially or otherwise. An extra special thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and to those of you who have made one-time donations to the website. Uh, we have lots of fun ideas to participate in and contribute to the craft community, but we need everyone's support in order to be able to do them. So if you're getting anything out of these conversations, Uh, please consider donating to the show. Yeah, so every contribution matters, both for helping us grow the podcast and raising money for craft scholarships. Also, thank you to our sponsors, North House Folk School in Minnesota, the John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina, Touchstone Center for Craft in Pennsylvania, Miss Caitlin's School of Blacksmithing in Maryland, and the new maker-focused social platform, We Make. A free way to support the show is to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and we appreciate the feedback. And if you'd like to see more images of guest work or stay up to date on other happenings like the class giveaways we've done with John C. Campbell or Pocosin Arts, please follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast. Also, if you want to see more of our work, both of our accounts are linked in the bio of the podcast page. You can also send us an email at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or guest recommendations for the show, or even if you just want to say hi. And as always, a huge thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for letting us use your music and for help with production and editing, and to Justin Williams for writing those poetic tidbits introducing our upcoming guests. Coming up, we have an interview with Sloyd woodworker Joge Sunquist. So to get a little glimpse into our conversation, here's a clip. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time. Yeah, this word Sloyd is, is an old Viking word, actually. It comes from my county uh, where we have a dialect uh, where the word is still alive, in, uh, especially amongst older people, not so much about younger people. But, and, and the word is schlög. And schlög means that you are clever in your hands. You can make things. You can put things together and they become functional and, and good things. Mm-hmm. And it has also a meaning that schlög is uh, that you're smart, a smart person. But it's 
very related to being practical and and functional you know in mm. life and it it all goes back to the time when when people in this county were self-sufficient so to say so if you were not uh, schlög <laughs> <laughs> uh, they it was not you were not worth very much because mm. you needed these skills and the, the funny thing in in my county is that people they never say that they are schlög they say they are not un schlög 